You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bloom in Tech, where we pick through the rubble of the collision of tech, media, and entertainment, looking for the cool stories that make this whole thing so darned interesting. As always, I'm so grateful to you for tuning in, and thanks as well to my sponsors who help make this thing go. This week I want to talk about a fascinating discussion between two very different film directors, Jill Soloway, who created the Emmy and Golden Globe winning Transparent series for Amazon Prime along with I Love Dick, and directed 2013's Afternoon Delight, and Jill Maggot, a New York-based conceptual artist whose really interesting work plays with, pokes at, and generally investigates the limits of surveillance culture, institutions, and technologies all around us. Among other things, Maggot is an associate of Harvard's Art, Design, and the Public Domain program and is an adjunct teacher at Cooper Union. Maggot's work veers from the hilarious to the horrific and back in an astonishing fashion. Here, in this conversation, she talks about work such as The Spy Project, where for three years she talked with agents of the Dutch intelligence service putting, quote, a public face, unquote, on the secretive organization. Suffice it to say, the organization very much had second thoughts about being outed in any way, especially by a project it was paying for. In another project, Maggot built a relationship with British police officers who were using that country's omnipresent surveillance cameras to track people, including, at her request, her. Or there's the six months she spent working with a New York transit police officer to teach her how to be a cop. Maggot, as she says during the conversation, says many of her works start with a threat or the possibility of a threat, and then she steps into it. Maggot's most recent creation is her first film, The Proposal, which was acquired by Oscilloscope Laboratories for distribution later this spring. The proposal is an unusual and provocative mix of documentary and conceptual art. It's a part of Maggot's continuing interrogation of the curious fate of the professional archive of Mexico's greatest architect, the Pritzker Prize-winning Luis Barragan. His professional archive writes to reproduce images of his work, and even his name, minus an accent mark over one of the A letters, were acquired after his death by the owners of a Swiss design firm. For most of the ensuing three decades, the patrimony of one of Mexico's greatest creators has been largely unavailable to the public or even most researchers, as the wife of the couple continues work on a book about the material. The occasion for the discussion, and for a screening of the proposal the previous night, was Freeze L.A., the giant international art fair that held its first Los Angeles gathering at the Paramount Pictures studio this past week. Freeze itself is huge, featuring big-name international galleries with big-name international artists. Lots of major brands back the event, and there are tons of panels, installations, films, branded activations, merchandise, and so much more. Tracks thousands of visitors from around the world, and some big Hollywood names, too. I spotted Brad Pitt, Mark Maron, Norman Lear, and Jim Burkus, the co-founder of UTA, one of Hollywood's biggest talent agencies. Freeze also attracted a bevy of satellite art fairs from downtown to Hollywood to the Santa Monica Airport, where the 10-year-old Art Los Angeles Contemporary once again brought together dozens more galleries to the Barker Hangar. And there were plenty of one-off events, like a huge opening at the UTA Gallery, which is tied to that talent agency I mentioned. There, hundreds of people swarmed a collection of African-American artists, such as Kahinda Wiley, who painted Barack Obama's official presidential portrait, and Frank White, whose career retrospective exhibition opened this weekend at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. 
Downtown, the sprawling Hauser and Wirth Gallery held an equally sprawling opening for 4,000 early photos of Annie Leibovitz, the former Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair photographer who's become almost as big a celebrity as her countless famous subjects. But out of all that, I have to say the most intriguing event of the week, for me, was the conversation between the two Jills, held early morning in an outdoor tent at Neuhaus Hollywood, the ever-so-cool co-working space carved out of historic former CBS studios on Sunset Boulevard. As rain absolutely pounded the roof of the tent, Soloway and Magid ranged far and wide, taking on a series of questions from Stacy Switzer, executive director of Fathomers, an arts organization based at Neuhaus, as well as some from the audience. After we hear from our sponsors, I'll play some of the highlights from the discussion between Switzer, Soloway, and Maggot. My apologies for some of the audio quality. Though we were recording off the soundboard, the rain was falling at was reportedly a near record rate for the first part of the conversation. Also a word to those of more delicate sensibilities. Soloway holds passionate positions on a series of issues around Hollywood, men, gender in general, the treatment of women, and other marginalized people. She sometimes uses pretty salty language. Anyway, give it a listen. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share the podcast. It really makes a difference with all the algorithms out there and helps me a great deal. So, here we go. Many thanks again to our sponsor for their support. Here's an edited down version of the lengthy talk between Jill Soloway and Jill Maggot, with help from Stacy Switzer of Fathomers and a few people in the audience, including me. It's important to note that uh, in the interest of time, I have pared down uh, perhaps half an hour of this conversation just to keep everything at a manageable length. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. It's a provocative dialogue between one woman who's busy breaking down boundaries left and right and another who's busy investigating and embracing and engaging those boundaries so we can understand they exist all around us. So we'll begin with a very broad question, and then I'll let you two kind of take it from there. But first question is, in your work, are you most interested in the kind of permission that you have that's somehow inherent or innate? the kind of permission that's granted, or the kind of permission that you take? I think the way that the questions asked, take, granted, or have, is maybe not the way I think of permission. Um, so in my work, I use and think of permission as a material, like as a, as a material of the work. The work is different. Um, in its form and content, whether I have permission to make it or I don't. Um, and um, I've been using permission as a material in my work since probably 2000, when I, I did a piece when I was a graduate student at MIT where I hacked into the security system of the school and made a video in real time of um, a surveillance camera going underneath my clothes and it was going through all of the video channels through the school. And um, somebody called the cops and they came in and said, who put a sex tape in the TV? And if you saw the video, it was like nothing like that, but it set off a question in my mind about vulnerability and power and permission. And 
what happens if the work, instead of being something that confronts against a power institution, if I make myself mutually vulnerable to an institution and gain permission to go deeper inside of it? Like, what, what will it look like then? What will be the, the outcome? So I think if I had to choose, I would say I'm interested in a permission that is granted, but I'm also very interested in permission that's denied because the second you hit that boundary when it's denied, the question is, well, why not? And usually that is a very loaded answer or leads to more questions, and that's kind of how the work starts developing. You're so brilliant. Oh, I love the way you think about things. I'm so amazed. This is why I invited her. Yeah. yeah. Your mind and the way you insert yourself into the art you make is, I'm just so jealous. And I wish I had ever been able to think of myself as an artist. It took me such a long time to get to a place. I think only recently I started to think of myself as an artist. So for me, in terms of permission, it was sort of permission to direct permission to be a filmmaker and I would say for 25 years from maybe the time I was 25 to you know 50 or let's say 20 years I was just kind of going up the ladder of being a TV writer and going up these levels and asking people for permission to direct I would go to my bosses and say can I direct an episode they would say no I would say please they would say no you're not ready and I kept getting no's, even when I became a showrunner. So I asked on Six Feet Under over and over and over again, can I direct? No, 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 you're not ready, you're not ready. And I, I became a showrunner on United States of Terror. I said, I will run this show if I can direct an episode. They said, sure. As soon as I started working, they said, we changed our mind, you can't direct an episode. And all of these gatekeepers were cis men who re were reserving the directing slots for people that they deemed ready. And I wasn't ready for some reason that I believed. I just totally believed it. I was like, I guess I'm not ready. And kept trying and kept thinking. And it wasn't until I really kind of went for it in a really desperate way where I had to become a director or else I was going to leave town that I started to realize what filmmaking is which is a permission structure for a fucking amazing good time <laughs> that everybody is keeping people from if it's not their own people. So as soon as I made Afternoon Delight, like I remember the first day I was with Katherine Hahn and Juno Temple on the set and it was a scene where they were smoking and kind of falling in love and I realized that like the feeling of falling in love, which you have to kind of give up on in real life. A film is a permission structure to do over and over and over again all day long to be in your emotions. And so as I realized how much fun filmmaking could be, I started to get angry, realizing that people like Adam Sandler and Ben Stiller have been getting the film business to pay for their experiences with their friends at far-flung locations for decades. That's what movie making is, is a permission structure to do whatever you want with the people you worship, and it's all paid for, and there's great food, and there's hotels, and somebody's fucking filming it. Sometimes I'm like on the set, and I'm like, I, I'm overwhelmed with how exciting this is. I need to get my camera out. And then I'm like, oh, we have a camera. This is a film. And Amazon's going to show it in 230 countries. There is nothing better than this. And so that, that's my relationship to permission. I kept asking for it. I couldn't get it. 
I took it and I realized that that's, yeah, that's what, that's, that's what art, that's why I've always been so amazed by you because the things that you do as an artist, I feel like the art is a permission structure to just yearn and encounter yourself. So, Jill S., in, throughout your memoir, there's this really amazing and compelling tension and sort of teasing out of this relationship between all different kinds of permission and also, I don't know if you ever used the word submission, but there's, there's acknowledgement at different points along the way, like you were just saying, you know, about moments where you said, okay, well, I guess I'm not ready, right? Or maybe other moments where you make a more affirmative decision to comply in some way. And I have been thinking about that alongside a quote from one of your books, Becoming Tardin, which I'll read if I can. As many of you know, and as I mentioned, Jill worked with the Dutch Secret Service for a major project where she was commissioned basically to make a percent for art project in essence, right? So the, uh, the first page of the book says, it is uh, from a letter that Jill wrote to the director of the Dutch Secret Service. And she says, this book, Becoming Tardin, is a memoir of our involvement. I had dreams of publishing it as my first novel. You are its only reader. Seize it, strip it, hold it in your building and seal it under glass. I comply. So I'd like to pose those two things next to each other as a kind of question about compliance alongside permission. Shall I comply with you your shall. wish to you permit me? You shall comply, I will go after you. Okay, well I think this like, huge desire I have to be in the place of art making, for me it gets very, um, it feels very safe based on a structure that I use called uh, action beat, speed change, and uh, playable, it's playable action. So um, action is a unit of movement, a beat holds it, the beat changes when you switch to the new action, and that all generates blocking. And because I have such strict boundaries, I can submit fully to the beat that I'm in as a director, as an actor. So like a lot of people think, you know, Cassavetes or you, you get on camera and you, you start improvising and you just allow, allow, allow. But all of the allowing to me is only possible because I have such a strict grid of very specific technique on top of everything, which is kind of Stella Adler and Stanislavski actions, actions, beats, beat changes, blocking. So you would never move unless you were doing something different to get what you want. Action is what you do to get what you want. A beat is the unit of measurement. The beat changes when you change what you're doing to get what you want, and you move, you block on the beat change. That very, very strict, it's like, it, it is like a kind of dominance in, in submission. It's very similar to the feeling of like being a bottom because I'm, I'm like a bottom to this grid. And so we know when the beat changes, so we know when the action is gonna be over, so we can do any action, play any action, as deeply and as fully as we wanna play. So I think the feeling of letting go when you're, when you're making art, to me, is, is only as possible as intense the boundaries are around those moments. Well, I'm exactly the same in that, that um, without a rigid conceptual structure, I'm completely lost. And in between projects is like my depressive, um, I have kids now so I can't indulge in it as much, but it used to be like mopey, 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 um, until I had a structure and I think maybe, it, you know, from 
from reading Jill's book about the blocking and everything you're talking about, I was thinking about that a lot too, that I think that my way is very similar in working, although there's no script in mind. Like, I don't know what's gonna happen. So with the Dutch intelligence agency where that letter came from, the, the short story of it is, is they hired me to find the face of their in invisible institution. I mean, I proposed that, it took like a year, and I finally got fully vetted and had total access to the intelligence agency and worked with 18 agents over three years, and they weren't supposed to tell me anything about their jobs, but they did. And I wrote a book about it, and then they threatened to confiscate the very book that they commissioned me to make and they sent a threatening letter that will put you in jail and fine you hundreds of thousands of dollars if you don't make your book a sculpture under glass in a one-time only exhibition, after which time it will be permanently confiscated by the Dutch government. So I got an invitation from the Tate Modern to do a solo show and I was like, I know exactly what I'm doing. Am I gonna use the museum as a dead drop, which is when one agent leaves something for another agent. Um, a live drop is when they meet each other. A dead drop is when it's like hidden under a bench. And um, my bench was the Tate Modern. And then I sent this letter to the director of the uh, intelligence agency that, okay, I comply with everything you're saying. These are museum hours. Go and get it. And so on the last day of the show, four men from the intelligence agency came in with a briefcase. I was like, are you guys playing the role of yourselves? Signed the authority to remove from site form and my show was called Authority to Remove. And they filled out the form and said, we're taking the body of the book and took the book and basically performed the last day of the show. So the, the whole structure of permission and compliance is like basically they commissioned me to find their face and then censored the very face I gave them back. But can so, you explain what that yeah. means? Like they commissioned yeah. you to find the face of the institution? Okay. Yes, so I'm like assuming you all know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> right, um, no, so what happened is I was living in Holland and a lot of, that's when terrorism was kind of like, you know, the London bombings just happened and suddenly the Dutch intelligence world um, was growing really fast and they couldn't fit in their building anymore. So they had to move to another building and LA probably has this too, 1% for art. It's called something else in Holland, but any public building funded by public money um, has to commission an artist. So they wanted something for their building, but I didn't want to make like a sculpture for them in the, in the, the building I wanted to know what is it like to be an agent? What is it like to have a public persona and a private persona? Is there a center of power? And so I, once I got the commission, then I kept saying to them, well, you know, you're this secret institution and no one knows what your face is like because you can't show it. What if you hire me as an agent and I, you know, write and make work about the face? And they were like, no way. And then I just kept going back in and saying it. And then finally they, you know, it was like, well, why not? And they said, well, the only faces we show are our PR people, Vincent and Miranda. And I was like, well, what if every agent I meet is named Vincent or Miranda? And so every agent was Vincent, Roman numeral one, two, three, four. And then they were like, but this is, every time there was a problem, I'd come back and be like, well, I solved this problem. And then it gets to a point where it's like, okay, fine. 
you know? And then they vetted me and then that's, so I was supposed to meet with the agents and um, I found this article, same with you with the structure, it was like, well, it's too big to just go in and find the face. But there was this article called Article 12 that was basically against blacklisting and it was like no agents will have files on them of their sexual history, religious preferences, ideas about the meaning of life, like basically everything that makes you you. So I was allowed to ask them that, but not anything about being a spy. And then I thought that when you sat with them for a few hours that they would just start saying things and then they didn't. And so one guy slipped and he said, I work in direction seven, which is counterintelligence. And so then I met with another agent and I was like, what direction are you in? And he's like, we're not supposed to tell you. And I was like, well, that's a shame because I met someone who's in direction seven. Counterterrorism's amazing. And he's like, well, I'm in direction three. And, and then over three years, you build that up. And all of your correspondence with them and the letters, these all become part of your art. You display them yes. as works of art. Yes. So I never know what is real. I mean, I wouldn't say I never know. Like, even in the film, if you see the film, I'm writing the letters between Federica and I. And I spend, like, two days, you know, just writing them beautifully. Like, I think of them as works. Yeah. But sometimes I know what the work is going to be. And sometimes like a different piece that you read, Lincoln Ocean Victoretti, that I worked with this cop, he gave me a bullet from his gun. And I thought that that was just this nice thing that I had and then realized it was like the sculptural object from the work. So sometimes it's a slower realization, but I think of all the gestures and the actions as part of the work and then how they formally materialize. It's like the way they play out gives me the material. So the letters are clear, but like with the spies, for instance, they said that I was getting dangerous. And I was like, why am I dangerous? And they said, you could burn us. Burning us means exposing our identity. So I made this neon installation where it was all my handwriting of writing about each spy, but it was in this burning red neon and filled this room of words. So the formal sculptures and materials grow out of that relationship. Can you say something about, I, I know you, I mean, you're, you know each other's work well. What similarities in strategy or obvious differences do you see? I mean, with, with it in mind that, Jill S., you work for mass and popular audiences, and I suppose also niche audiences within a more popular audience. Jill, you, you know, obviously are connecting directly through art audiences, and then your work also finds its way into you know, the, the institution as an audience. What do, you, what do you see as some dynamic similarities or differences there? Well, I mean, it's just one thing about Jill that really inspires me a lot, besides the content of the work. I mean, Afternoon Delight is just amazing, if you haven't seen it. It's, you talk about how, like, it took you so long to take that on, like, the, the idea of complying when people said no, which is, like, not at all how I see you, even when you're, like, stressing it that this is what happened because I think that you have a really amazing way of taking niche or very uncomfortable things and putting it in a much bigger audience and kind of chaperoning it through, which is a really uncomfortable thing to do. And also this thing too, of you're saying the bottom and making this structure, but you built that structure. So I'm entering structures that exist and have to navigate them, but you're also constructing those, those structures. So although there's like 
a similar mindset. I think there there's a scale difference. Yeah, maybe you can speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I think about like my relationship to you and your work before I thought of myself as an artist and when I think I was more of like a TV writer. And, you know, recently, now that I've come out as non-binary, since my parent came out as trans, I think about gender all the time. I think about boundaries and the border as, this, as my specific interest. And realizing that all of these phrases like non-binary or bipolar or borderline, all of these ways of not fitting in are about boundaries and borders. And I realize, you know, that I'd like to kind of rush straight toward the boundary, set up a room in the boundary, make more space in the boundary, and then invite people in. But before I thought of myself as an artist, I would do things like go to the shortstop on cop night and have a relationship with a cop. And that was separate from my art. That was just Jill acting out or me doing something. It was sort of like, I'm going to write about it. I was using like writing and writing my book to be able to say, to give myself permission to do that. But I remember when I read your book about the transit officer and I felt so much in common with you because it was like this kind of like a little bit of pity, a little bit of longing towards like a man in uniform who has this power over you, who thinks they have power over you because they're official, yet maybe you have power over them because you're like a really smart Jewish girl. And then you're gonna push this, you know, like my clash went down in a small cul-de-sac in his neighborhood in Rancho Cucamonga where I was like, why did I go home with him? Where am I? I have to go home. It wasn't art, it was just like a really weird Saturday. But <laughs> I felt like you got to do the things I wanted to do as part of being an artist. I was doing them and thinking, what's my problem? Now that I can write about them and let my characters do them and film, you know, write them out as scenes and turn them into something I can film, I feel much less inclined to do them in real life. But I think that's one of the things we have in common is like looking at something that would be a boundary. Here's a man, he's, an, he's a police officer, he sees himself as having authority and then like going right up to it and saying like, well, what is the authority once we cross the boundary of civilian and police officer? And it gets, it gets really messy, like especially that work. It, for mine, it's called Lincoln Ocean Victoretti, which means love in radio telephony language. So any cop will know in New York, if you say Lincoln Ocean Victoretti, you're saying love. And I think that like, a lot, I don't get it as much now, but a lot of times people would be like, well, what's your real life and what's art? And it's not that they're the same, but they're not completely different either. So, but there is something about that I'm making something that I think I submit to the power of the work. So even when the Dutch intelligence director was threatening me, you know, people were like, stand back, you know? But it's like, but that's not right for the work. Like the work requires me to take it to the end. So it does give a kind of permission and it does, make me feel like slightly real and slightly not real, even though the repercussions are totally real. Like you it's thought a about real jail. Have you, yeah, have, you thought, have you thought of, have you gone through the process of, if I went to jail, it would yeah. be okay and it would be like this because yes. you have. I mean, it's a joke in our family. Yeah. Like if mommy goes to jail, this is what we'll do, you know? But there, I mean, even with the film, Laura Poitras was the one who is my executive producer, and she said right away, you need to start a film company 
because if they sue you, you need the company to get sued and not you, and we switched the house. We had it in both our names and we switched it to John. So we're really thinking about like, what are the realities of it? But I think that, especially when, it's the beginning when the structure isn't set yet, when I don't know the rules yet, that I'm more wishy-washy, but once the rules of the game are in play, they must be played till the end. Like, I'm very firm about it. So yeah, we... Yeah, so jail might be the end. Jail might be the end. But usually, like, it's so absurd and weird that I don't know if anyone would really put me... Like, what it, they gave me permission. So, yeah. But if it was the end, I'd have to consider it. So given that you both have accomplished so much and are still so young... what Thanks, are Stacy. <laughs> what do you see as some of your biggest creative challenges now, either having to do with permission and consent or... Not. Like, what are your big learning edges now? I'm in a really great place because we just wrapped on the Transparent Musical movie on Friday. And it was so fun. And, you know, it's like my second movie. And it has a bunch of songs in it and dances. And I raised my game. And it's the biggest thing I've ever directed. And I kind of came out of that going, like, is there any way I could take that movie Red Sonia away from Brian Singer and direct a $100 million movie now? Yeah. I'm trying. Because I feel at this point like I don't have any challenges except for, uh, you know, people being willing to trust me with $100 million instead of, you know, the, the movie budgets that I get trusted with. So I have a huge appetite for doing things on a bigger, 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 bigger and bigger scale. And I'm so lucky that I'm in a position in my career where um, I feel like I'll, I'll have access to that in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I got, a puppy, I got a puppy last night. That's my biggest challenge. Eva's got the puppy. Like, yeah, I was totally free this weekend where I'm like, I've done everything, I'm totally happy, I don't need to do anything except for just wait for the world to come at me, and so I got a puppy. What about you, Jill? I'm, I'm working towards the puppy thing. It's too much responsibility, especially if I'm in jail. I think for me, I mean... It's a great question because I think there's a few projects I'm working on now. One of them, which we're discussing, is probably ambitious and maybe won't happen, but I hope will. And um, so I think like project-based, but I definitely want to make more films. I loved the process of making a film so much. I just, again, my work, the way I make it is, I don't know what the film would be yet because I haven't lived out the process yet to make it. I mean, the books behind me, I think, could be great films, but that would be a really new challenge to make a film out of something that I wasn't inside of at the time. Because the proposal, as you'll see, if you haven't, um, it unfolds like, I don't know how it's gonna end. So, I want to do that, and I, I think the way Jill's talking about scale, I'm in a smaller scale. My budget for making the proposal, I'm sure, was not as good as your budgets that you are ready to move on to, but I think scale is a very interesting question because I do feel like the work is in the art world, but it's always kind of like in, I don't know, a kind of niche part of the art world, which I'm totally fine with, but I do sometimes question, like, also, when I write my books, it's like, where did those go? There's just all these, like, separate worlds in the art world. Like, my sister's a playwright, and we don't even watch the same films or read the same books, and so I'm really curious of, like, crossovers and getting things out in a different, the same kind of things, but maybe figuring out different channels and different ways 
to manifest them. Sorry, that was a whooshy, whooshy answer, but it was like more in my head than in my mouth. So that might be a good place for us to pause and open it up for questions. I'm actually curious, Jill Soloway, what you were speaking of about this, this image of the world where the, the poles have turned and the men are experiencing the otherness and all of that. Have you considered portraying that or writing something where we can actually see that reflection in the media and start to receive some of those images as an alternative to everything we see in media now. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I actually wrote a movie where the genders were switched when I was 25 before my parent came out as trans. So I didn't know that my parent was trans. I didn't know that I lived in a trans family, but I was obsessed with gender. And that was my first film that I ever wrote, you know, where women were cops and women were mowing the lawn really fat with their shirt off. And women were playing football, and women were the president, women were Jesus, and women were God. And, and just trying to like create that translation for everybody to feel. So I did write it. The problem was that it was about men, because it was about a relationship between a father and a son who were, feel, you know, I wanted, you know, I was writing it. It was about, in my mind, like a teenage girl whose dad had left her mom for a Budweiser model. There were these girls in Chicago called Bud Girls, and you would see them at all the various festivals, and they walked around in bikinis. And I wanted to write a movie about a girl whose dad left their family for one of these like hot young models. And so I switched the genders and made it, it was called Bud Boy, and it was about a teenage boy whose father, whose mother had left his father for a hot young boy. And then I had a movie about men. You know, because I was writing about the vulnerability and it, it, they ended up not making it. Then I went back to look at it and I was like, OK, I'm going to be if I make this movie, I'm going to be making another movie about men because I'm always wanting to write the underdog. And in this world, it would be the underdog. So I still think it would be a really cool project. But yeah, it's it's I thought it would be a cool VR project, you know, to just like move through this world. I would love to try and create it. It seems so obvious to me that nobody else has done it yet. But yeah, I would love to try to make it. Do it. Yeah, I'll try. <laughs> when I first encountered uh, Joel uh, Maggot, uh, your, your work, I was really uh, struck with this sort of notion of, you know, regimes of power and how we all submit to them. I mean, I've heard that announcement so many times, but I never thought of, you know, to go to a cop and, because I'm afraid of cops. So it's interesting to me, you know, this, this way in which we submit or comply in this very smooth way, uh, which allows for these regimes of power to, you know, continue to function in a very smooth fashion. And I feel like both of your guys' work has to do with, you know, different kinds of resistance or different kinds of ways to sort of subvert, perhaps change. So I'm wondering, like, how you think about, I mean, I think all of us are obsessed with this idea of, like, what do we do? You know, how do, we, how do we resist actively or effectively uh, these very damaging structures? I mean, in this whole Trump situation, and sorry if you're a Trump fan, but if you're not, it is kind of like you just feel sometimes like there's, what can you do? Just you think it's like, okay, well, that's not going to be accepted. And then it is. But I think that banality and cliche are, are often hiding a lot, you know, the things that we just say, like I did a piece where I was going to research snipers and then I, the first day I witnessed 
an absurd shooting on the front steps of the Capitol, and I was the witness on TV, and I made this whole thing. And and when I would tell the story, I was like, well, I was in Texas researching snipers, and then this guy shot up in the air, and everyone's like, well, it's Texas. I'm like, oh, oh, then it's nothing. It was Texas. Everyone just shoots guns in Texas. There's just so many things where people are like, oh, but that's because that. And then you're like, well, but that's not an answer, you know? So I think that's even with, like, a lot of my projects, even, uh, the, the one where the cops, evidence locker, where the CCTV police controllers followed me for a month, everyone was like, well, how'd you get them to follow you? I was like, there's a publicly available form, and I filled it out, the first person in three years. So I think that there's a lot of access points that are laying, like, they seem secretive, and they're not. They're just not known or you know so a lot of the times like yes with the dutch i was invited but a lot of them is like there's a threat or a possibility and i step into it so i feel like there's probably more and more of those ways to do things that just haven't been revealed or or found how has being a parent and parenting informs or affected your thinking, your process, methods with, with how you think about permission. And even though it's not a troubled system of power necessarily, you have that exchange of asking for permission and having it granted or denied, or has it affected your thinking? And if so, how? I'll let you answer it. Thank you. <laughs> Look, I don't think all rules are bad. I love rules. I would, you know, not be able to make art without structures and rules. And I think without going into like a parenting kind of discussion, I think that setting up structures and boundaries um, in a really healthy, thoughtful way is really important. And I don't usually think of them in relation to the work, even though we were both calling them permission. My kid asking to do something I don't think of myself as the authority structure that he has to go through. Or I mean, of course they do. Like, I'll ask dad then because he's going to say yes. I mean, kids are savvy that way, you know, trying to figure out the structures. But I, I hope that I am more thoughtful about what rules I put in place and am more open to thinking about them. So I think... Otherwise, I would say I kind of keep my family and my work separate as much as you can when you're the same person who's the protagonist kind of in each but I like hate the thing when people said to me when I gave birth like oh is this your best artwork like no it, I can't tell you how many people said that to me and it's like no I didn't like sculpt this baby <laughs> and it's like has its own way of being and all of that I mean I think what's closest is that my work is really looking at the nuances of relationships and people are amazing and surprising, and even the ones that are the scariest are sometimes the most vulnerable. And I think just being like as open and available and as loving towards all of it, towards the kids and these power systems, like I kind of fall in love with the system, you know? And I really believe if you stare at something or concentrate on it long enough, you will fall in love with it. So in that way, there's a kind of overlap to it but it doesn't mean like dumb love where you're like accepting anything it, it's it's if anything more thoughtful and more pronounced i was interested in in the film uh, the process of seduction 
that you carried on the epistolary seduction of uh, Federica. And it sounds like, to some extent, that is a through line in much of your work from what the other things that you've talked about. And that, of course, is the thing that is assigned to women as seductresses. How do you think about that as that through line and what that means as an artist and a woman and your interactions, and, which are all about relationships? Seduction, I've always thought of in my work from the beginning, but I think of it in a, like, and not to sound all art theory-ish, but in a Baudrillardian sense of seduction as keeping the game in play. And I think that piggybacking off of what I just said before of a kind of concentration and intimacy is that that pause instead of what I was saying about banal and cliche, that if you really focus on something and slow down and try to understand it, that there is this process of being like I'm seduced myself. It's not like I'm like using wily ways and and I feel nothing. You know, it's a vulnerable submitting to a system. In that case, it was Federica, and it's because they're relationships. It's not just me or it's the combination of the system together. So. There is an element of seduction, like with the with what I was saying about the CCTV letters. Like I didn't just fill it out, like name, address. I was on the corner of Tillery and Dewitt, and I saw this happen. It wasn't like that. Like I filled them out like diary entries and love letters, and little by little, the cops were like reading them and started looking for me through the system. So it was a kind of seduction. But by the end, I was calling them, and I was like, I want you to film me like Bridget Bardot going down Main Street. But it, it is this mutual thing. Like, the projects are vulnerable for all of us, and that's why they become scary. And yes, I think gender is a part of that, although I don't think it's as easy in all instances to say in a heteronormative way. I mean, Federica and I have a different relationship than I did with some of the agents in the, the spy agency, male or female. I met with both. I think for me, it's about the quality of that specific relationship rather than an overarching thing. But, but gender and these relationships and seduction, like yes, all of the controllers of the police on the CCTV system in Liverpool that I worked with, every single one of them was men. There was not a single woman watching through one of those cameras. And there was always used to be someone in the audience who would stand up and, do you think the cops would have watched you if you were a man? And as if they, like, called me out. And I was like, no, I don't. I mean, maybe they would have, but probably not. I mean, I saw, there's this one film, one of the videos where they're following me through the cameras and I close my eyes and they walk me blind through the city. And at the end, I open my eyes and the cop says goodbye because I have an earphone piece and I can hear him and he says goodbye. And I was going to cut the video there, but I was like in the middle of doing something and I let the tape run. And the camera goes dead, the surveillance camera goes dead. And you can feel when it's dead. Like you can just feel that no one's watching through it. And then all of a sudden this really beautiful woman with, you know, great body walks into, walks down the street and the camera suddenly awakens and starts following her. That's, I don't need to say anything. 
I just kept it in the film. And that is our show. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation between Jill Maggot and Jill Soloway. I hope you get a chance to try out some of the art stuff. It's all over town, and I do hope that this is the start of a big thing going forward. I think it has a lot of potential to make L.A. an ever more interesting place. Part of me feels it's a little silly to need an international art fair to validate the really remarkable, huge vibrant, fast-evolving, incredibly productive art scene that is in Los Angeles with all its great artists, its great weather, its great institutions, both museums and academic institutions that teach art. But, you know, the art world needs what it needs, and now we have Freeze LA to help bring in the international crowd to see all that's here and all that's wonderful about it. In the meantime, I hope you're having a great weekend and doing well otherwise, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. This is David Bloom for Bloom and Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom and Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone. Thank you.